Um, let's get started today. I want to thank you. I greet you in the name of Jesus. I'm glad you are here. Thank you for showing up for a little monthly gathering. I know that we meet every week and I know that we, you know, it's not necessary to have the monthly on Sunday, but a couple years ago when we talked about it, um, everybody wanted to do it. And now it's something I look really, really forward to every month. We kind of move away from what we're doing on Tuesdays. We share communion together. I love to hear what's happening in your world and your life. So um, keep that on deck for whatever's going on that you might want to share that the Father's revealed to you, something you're working out, wrestling with, want to ask about. This is not a place to get answers. Uh, it's not a place to get fixed, um, but it is a place to encounter Christ, to encounter Christ together, encounter Christ in the lives of the people near you. And I have found that is quite a way to encounter Christ because if you can learn to do it, you can see Jesus in people. And that is a great way to see Jesus because he looks different in Jackson than he does in Jamie because they're not the same person. There is no universality of meeting Christ in that when we meet him, everybody likes the same songs. They dress in the same shirt. They go to the same kind of church. They drive the same car. When you're in that, you're probably in a cult. I mean, really, if you're in something where the end result is like this cookie-cutter version of, ooh, this is what you look like when you get saved as everybody makes this turn and then boom, run. Because you've had something that squashed the individuality and the beauty. The Bible tells us that there's a manifold grace for manifold tests. Peter said that. Manifold means multicolored. There's multicolored grace because we have multicolored problems. Because we're multicolored people. We've got all kinds of stuff going on in our lives. Everybody brings something to the table. You bring the, you bring the public thing to the table, and you got your private stuff that you're holding on to at the table, too. That if you're with your neighbors long enough, you might unlock your hand and let some of it go. That's the goal. Well, there's grace for that. But if you're in a place where the grace isn't for that, where that gets swept aside or crushed, I would encourage you to pray another spout of grace <laughs> into your life because... Uh, I, want your, I want your individuality to shine, but that, it, but that you shine in knowing that you are resurrected in Christ. That's a lot of what we, that's, that's really all I'm ever trying to do. I hope that you get to see Jesus. You get to know that you get to walk in a resurrected reality. What's that look like? All right, well, it looks different every day. I like the conversation Pastor Jamie and I were having before here. Is I, I love that. Jesus doesn't talk a lot about the resurrected life post-resurrection because Jesus knows that it's going to look differently for Lauren than it does for Natasha. And so he's not going to give this formula. It's like, okay, after you encounter me, here's exactly what's going to happen in your life because that's not the way this works. Um, he tells you how to deal with the world because you're going to do that. He tells you the response system, but what you, how you walk this out is entirely yours. Well, that kind of leads to the title tonight, today, and that is what it means to have the mind of Christ. I'm always hesitant to do titles like this because what do I know? I mean, I don't know the answer to the, to the statement, what it means to have the mind of Christ, but I put it up there as, a, as something to work on, okay? That's what I want to do with you. I want to work on it. I don't claim that when we get finished, we'll walk out and go, well, it's a good thing I come to hear Paul White because I figured out what the mind of Christ is. No, but, but I might give you some things to think about and some things to turn over and then go out here and do something with, and then you go to work on it. You wrestle with it. You get into the scripture and say, hmm, didn't see that that way before, or is this something to think about? And because I have really 
worked with that my whole life. I've been infatuated with that idea that we're supposed to have Christ's mind. It's a scripture we're going to get to in a little bit. That we're supposed to think like Jesus. You go, well, that's impossible, man. How do I, th- I didn't think like Jesus. Jesus is beyond me in every possible way. Well, if that's where you start, good job. You're right. He's beyond you in every possible way. If you're not starting there, I question you. Um, Yes, he's beyond you. He doesn't think like you. He doesn't think like us. And that's good because then that means we've got some work to do. And that's okay. Um, Learning how the mind of Christ works and what it looks like. So that leads me to just some thoughts before we get into any scripture. You know the way I think. Um, how did Jesus think? Because to me, that's the question you've got to ask. If a statement is what it means to have the mind of Christ, okay, well, what's that look like? Start there. Not how do I get there? i got to know where I'm going first. So what did Jesus think? Well, that, I think, is where we're going to really get our, figure out something today. And if we can start to think the way Jesus thought. So let's start in terms of Christian, all right? Jesus wasn't one. There's a good place to start. All right. Jesus wasn't Christian. What I mean by that is that Jesus did not adhere to what we call the Christian faith. Jesus would not have called himself a Christian. And you might go, yeah, that's semantics. It's a term that didn't come along for a while. Therefore, how could Jesus call himself? I get the semantics part, but I mean literally Jesus was not a Christian in the way we think of Christian, in that he prayed some prayer, had his old man regenerated, was baptized so that he could identify with the family of God, and then walked into the resurrection reality, had to work against his nature or had to uh, go get forgiveness for his sins because he kept failing. And, you know, one day he got in a fist fight with Peter and another day he cussed out Pilate and he needed to go talk to the father and get all that cleaned up. That's us. That's not Jesus. He's not Christian. And whether you like it or not, everything I just described is Christian. You say, oh, you're not supposed to throw the failures in when you talk about Christian. Well, then you're not talking about Christians. You're talking about fake people. Christians have a bunch of failures and problems, and they get themselves into scrapes, and they mess up, and they screw this thing up. And in that, Jesus was not a Christian. Okay, that's solved then, right? He's not a Christian, and yet what we follow and who we follow is Jesus, and we're, work, we're, we're walking after him, and we're, we're taking after him. Um, so I'll deal with it from another angle, and that is this. In the, in the message of grace and the finished work and the kingdom and whatever titles you want to put, I'm not a real titles fan, but I know people need it, and they go message of grace kind of lets them know that someone's at least a- attempting to present grace as the centerpiece of the message. So you could do worse than calling it the message of grace. Let's start there. In the message of grace, we love to say things like Christianity is not a religion. Christianity is a relationship. And... Um, I think we've overdone that to the point that, okay, most people realize that you're supposed to be in a relationship. We're also denying a very fundamental tenet of what religions are, and we're making ourselves look like we don't know what we're talking about in front of the other religions of the world. Yes, indeed. In comparison to the other religions of the world, Christianity is indeed a religion, and it is because it is manward, from man Godward which is almost the universal definition of the basis of a religion. It's men looking up, out, in, over, sideways, or backwards to try to find God. 
and you can call it whatever your religious preference is. In that definition, Christianity is a religion. Here's the kicker. In that definition, it's not any better than the other ones. Hmm. Okay. In that definition, it's not any better than the other ones because it's just people trying to do better. It's just people trying to get to God. It's people trying not to mess up, trying to keep their homes intact, trying to be good citizens, crossing their fingers, hoping they, that when they die, they get to go see God, whatever they think God looks like. In that, Christianity, no better than the other religions because that, if that's the definition. So let's go back to Christianity is not a religion. Christianity is a relationship. Um, it sounds great. Like we don't do it like everybody else. We have a relationship with our father. But most of the time it's being spoken by people that have no idea what a real relationship looks like because real relationships are honesty. Like you can't lie to people you're in a relationship with and yet we're lying to God all the time. So you might as well just go back to calling it a religion. Or real relationships give a lot constantly because that's how you maintain relationship. I'm not talking about money. You say give in front of Christians and they start holding their wallets because it's all we've ever heard about giving. And yet that's not what I'm talking about at all. Although, sure, throw in a few bucks here and there. That's part of giving as well. But, it's, but the giving required of relationship is that I don't get to do everything I want to do. I don't get to say everything I want to say. I have to listen once in a while. I might even not go to all the places I want to go. And quickly, the very people that are calling Christianity a relationship, not a religion, are very quick to call everything law that you introduce that's actually the definitions of a relationship. So if I say to you, uh, I'm in relationship, which means I don't just get to do everything I want. They go, yeah, but in Jesus you do. You're free. You can do anything you want. You go, well, what is it, a religion or a relationship? Because in a relationship, I don't do just everything I want. Are you paying attention to what relationship means? So, in terms of Christianity is a religion, not a relationship, pump the brakes a little bit until you're ready to embrace relationship for what it really is. And when you are, then I'm on board with you. Five stars, two thumbs up, I amen it all day long. Christianity is way better than a religion that looks like the ones in the rest of the world because it's a relationship in which we've learned to give who we really are to receive what he really is. And in that definition, it knocks down the classic definition of religion because religion is believing, behaving, worshiping, sacrificing, or anything man thinks help him get right with God or find God. In that definition, Christianity doesn't qualify very well if we put Christ back in the middle of the faith. If Christianity is just the means by which I try to find God, then your Christianity is, a bar, is believing, behaving, worshiping, sacrificing, and hoping that you get right with God, or hoping that at the end of your Christianity, you get to go to heaven, then Christianity is a classic religion. But I think we're better than that. I'm, I'm doing all this for a reason. This is a, good, this is a setup. I don't know if it's a good setup, but it's a setup. And so I just, I want you to see that it's not thinking like a Christian isn't putting on the mind of Christ, Okay. Thinking like a religious person isn't necessarily putting on the mind of Christ. Yes, I had the silliness of Jesus wasn't a Christian. You know he's not a Christian. But we've sort of transplanted some of the so-called Christianese thoughts into Jesus and his disciples like there's some mini church that looks like the best church you can come up with as if Christianity should model that. And what we, we really need to do even better than that. And so let's expand what we really are. We are not trying to find God. 
We are not trying to please God. We are also not trying to quit sinning. Uh, we have nothing to offer the world by living well. I'm going to close this, see if this helps. There we go. All right. We're not trying to find him. We're not trying to please him. If you are, okay, we'll start there. Maybe you said, ooh, I'm, I'm trying to find God. I'm trying to please God. Okay, because there's a lot of people at different places on the journey. But what it really means to follow Christ is not trying to find who God is or trying to please God in any natural or spiritual sense. And I know that second sentence is a real shocker. We're really not trying to quit sinning. Christianity is not a sin-free camp. Hey, everybody get in here. Can tell us everything you did wrong so that you can stop doing wrong. I do think, by the way, confessing your sins is a great thing because you get healed. If you got wrongs and you want them righted, you might want to tell it to some people that care. Listen, if you got wrongs and you want to get crushed, tell it to a bunch of people who don't love you. There you go. You got wrongs and you, don't, and you want to get knocked down, post them on social media. You got wrongs you want healed, tell somebody that, that, that cares. So in that setting, we're not trying to find God. We're not trying to quit sinning. I like this thought. We have nothing to offer the world by living well. Quite frankly, there's some religions that do a better job in Christianity at living well. All right? The world doesn't transform because a religion figures out how to live well. So let's get living well out of our ideology. Okay, so what are we left with? <laughs> We're not trying to fix people. We're not trying to quit sinning. We're not trying to live well. We're not, you know, formulating some church. Um, we're not trying to get to God. So what's Jesus doing? What in the world is, what, what's going through his head that needs to be going through my head? What, what do I need to be thinking about in, in, in those terms? Um, I, I want to throw one verse at you before we really dig in and read. And that's, uh, this is just a verse to kind of qualify that thing right there. Because I know so that'll catch people's attention that we're not trying to quit sinning part. And we have nothing to, world, to offer the world by living well. The truth is, Paul said this in Romans 7.10. I use the ESV because this says something in a way that I think you just need to kind of etch this in your brain. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. Okay. In other words... The things that I do or read or adhere to that I thought would bring me life actually don't bring me life. And the reason I use that verse is because we have the law and the commandments and all these statutes and they won't help the world. Let me say it again. None of our stuff will help the world. Our moral stances will not change the world. Jesus did not... If, why? If Jesus could have changed the world with moral platitudes, don't you think he would have done it? He's Jesus. His moral platitudes are better than ours. Why did he have to go to the cross? So don't ever forget that the road Jesus is on is going to take him downward to death and that his death and his resurrection become the springboard for what makes us actually Christians. So now let me stop with the games, what Christianity is not. Let me just give you what I, this is my wrestlings of where I think it, what I think it is. Call it a religion, don't call it a religion. Call it a relationship, don't call it a relationship. It's all jumbled. But Christianity should be as simple as possible and distill it down to maybe this thought. Christians are those who follow Jesus Christ. But we follow Him in His way. And here's where it gets a little hairy. It's not difficult, but here's where you got to pay attention. We follow Him in His death and His resurrection. It's not just that we follow what Jesus says. We follow the death and resurrection of Christ. And I don't mean we go out here and physically die so that we can resurrect. Though, how many of you know you're going to physically die and you're going to resurrect? Guess what? You are, I wish I could shout this from the housetops, in church or out of church, 
Are you going to die? Yes. Are you going to resurrect? Even if you're out of church? Yes, because at the end of the Bible, everyone, both the small and the great, the, the good and the evil, all of them get to stand before God. In other words, everyone eventually comes out. So everyone's going to die and everyone is going to come out. And if that happens, that's going to happen in Christ. So guess what? You will die and you will resurrect anyway. Christianity is the journey of that in this life, not just in the next one. Following Jesus is learning what it looks like to die and resurrect in this life, not just die and resurrect. This is why it's cheap universalism to say, why tell anybody about Jesus if in the end everybody dies and resurrects anyway? Because you don't understand what Christianity is. It is not just dying in the natural so you can live again someday in the eternal. It is experiencing the resurrected reality while you're still on this earth. That's an honor. That's unlike any faith on the planet. That you get to experience what Jesus died and resurrected for. We're following him in that. We follow his life and we accept his death as our death. Our death to old patterns, habits, ways. And we need to see that our sins die in his death. And so the sin of man has died in the death of Christ Jesus then is on his way to the cross. You want to know where his mind is? First of all, it's tunnel vision. He's on his way to Calvary. So his message is focused on dying so that you can resurrect. Dying so that you can resurrect. Everything is to go meet an end so that it can meet a new life. Right? And that leads us to our text. Philippians 2. Starting in verse 5, Paul writes this. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. Simple enough, right? What the, whatever he thinks, you think. No, not simple. That's why I spent 15 minutes trying to give you the idea about maybe what Jesus wasn't thinking about so that we can talk about what maybe he is thinking about. The same mind is in you that was in Christ who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited. But he emptied himself. And he took the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, being found in human form. He humbled himself and became obedient. Here it comes. To the point of death, by humbling himself, his obedience acquiesces not upward. This is what I wish Christians would. This is where I hope what we'll hope. We'll get. I know I'm working backwards on this text, but this is what I hope we would get. Christianity is not the slow ascent upwards towards God. Christ's obedience did not bring him closer to the throne. Christ's obedience brought him to the point of death, even death on a cross. When Christ obeys what he hears, it isn't an ascent upward through wealth, prosperity, power, and hierarchies. It is a descent towards letting go of everything he is so that there's nothing left at the cross. Come follow me is not follow me to glory upward into the stratosphere of goodness. Come follow me is if any man loves his life, he shall lose it. But if he loses his life for my sake, he shall find it. Come follow me. The way of the master is the way of the cross. The way of the master is to die. Why do you think we're doing the Sermon on the Mount? What does it mean if a guy smacks you on a cheek and yet you turn to him the other one? What did you just die to? 
You died to the right to get back at him. That's why you turned the other cheek. When a man asks you to carry a load a mile, but then you take it too, what did you die to? The liberty of not carrying it a second mile. Every action that the kingdom gives you is death to the action you would have normally taken had you not followed Jesus. I would have done whatever I wanted to do. This is why I told you earlier, stop calling this a relationship unless you're willing to give. Because relationships go, I don't know, what do you want to do, honey? And then when they say it, you go, mm, okay, we'll do that. Even though there's a part of you that goes, I don't want to do that. But I'm in a relationship. And I don't get to do everything I want to in a relationship. I don't know, maybe. Don't ask if you don't want to go eat at that place. You go, you go, do you want to go eat there? And then, of course, the great answer is, I don't know. I'll eat wherever you want to eat. And then we don't eat anywhere. Because you just fight over the 12 restaurants that no one cares if they eat at or not. Right? So there's a lot of give and take. So the re- part of that relationship then is in following Jesus all the way to wherever he takes you. And I just ask you this. What if where he takes you is obedience to the point of death, even death on the cross. And I've told you this before. I don't think we would do well at recruiting new Christians if we change the message from come follow Jesus, you can go to heaven when you die because everybody's going to hell and you don't want to go to hell, do you? So come get saved. If we change the message to come follow Jesus so that you can, do, you can follow his obedience all the way to death, even if it means the death of the cross. I just don't think a lot of us would be signing up if what the death of Christ meant was letting go of some things we're infatuated with or letting go of the things that we hold on to so greatly. And so having read this entire thing, and you know we're not just going to leave that alone, that we're definitely going to work that, let's just now think how did he think? Not just what did he think, but how did he think? There's a couple of phrases in there. Look at this phrase in six. God, he didn't regard equality with God as something to be exploited. Okay. Um, The idea of exploited is an alternate translation. I think the NIV does this. Maybe it's the ESV. This is closer in the Greek. To the phrase grasp. If I reach out and grab you, grasp you, then I use my grip to hold on to something. The phrase that right here in verse 6, Jesus did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, is a little cleaner as he didn't regard it as something to be grabbed something to be held on to now notice he already had it let's work downward he already had equality with god he came to the earth to be a man but he didn't think he should hold on to what he had so a part of who jesus is is to let go or not to grasp the thing he can grasp and i like i use the nrsv here because i like the 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 usage of exploited emptied Exploited at the end of six, emptied at the top of seven. That's, that's a literary device on purpose. Holding on to God was not something to be exploited, but rather emptying himself was his job. So I'm not here to hold on. I'm here to let go. This is Jesus. Think of it this way. Exploited versus emptied. Let's work on this. Jesus did not regard his heavenly nature as something to be grasped. There's that word in the Greek. All right. Jesus did not regard his heavenly nature as something to hold on to. He had to let go of what he was so that he could be who he needs to be. In short, he had to let go of what he was so he could be what you need him to be. You need to see him as a man. You don't need to see him as Superman. 
You see Superman, you just go, well, I can't do that. But if you see him as a man who has faith in his father, then you see something you can hold on to. So he didn't regard that as something to be grasped. Instead, he emptied himself, or in a more contextual term, he refused to grasp anything at all. What you hold on to owns you more than you own it. Let's stay there for a second. Whatever you reach out and grab is as close to you as you pull it. And the fact that you hold it means, I know this is going to sound stupid, but the fact that you hold it means that you don't not hold it. Okay? You hold it, therefore it becomes something. Otherwise, why are you holding it? You go, just let go. All you got to do is let go. You go, well, I, if you let go, you let go possessing it and everything it could have been. This is why we hold on to things way too long, by the way. We hold on to things way too long because we know what they could be and we're in love with what they were. We do this with relationships with people who come into our lives and we embrace them and they mean something to us and then they don't mean anything to us, but we keep holding on because we're scared to let go because then that's a void. And so a lot of times we grasp at things and in the grasping at things, just know that whatever you grasp at, you possess and because you possess it, you can't let it go because you can't let it go, you can't pick up anything else. So in context, the mind of Christ was to grasp nothing. Let this mind be in you who didn't think it was worth grasping to hold on to what he was, which tells you that the mind of Christ is to let go of stuff. Let's go, I don't hold on. Instead, I empty so that the Father can do something with what is emptied in me. So the mind of Christ is grasp nothing and empty yourself himself to the point of death. So if we are to share this mind, then you need to think about what it is you ought to grasp. All right, now we're getting somewhere. What was the mind of Christ according to Philippians? The mind of Christ was not to grasp onto the things that he wasn't supposed to hold onto, but to empty himself for the thing that God had for him. Here's a good place to start in learning the mind of Christ. If our mind is supposed to be like the mind of Christ, then we need to inventory once in a while what we need to let get our grasp off of. Because as long as we got our grasp on things, how are we going to empty ourselves for whatever it is that God wants to do next? Listen, if you've got one hand and it can grasp, it can only hold one thing. Right? If I ask you to hold your hand out, I'm going to put something in it. When I put something in it and you close it and I had three more things to put in it, you can't receive number two. Okay? As long as the hand is open, you can receive. My point there is that we make a decision on what we hold on to and, we, and what we hold on to becomes important. This is why Jesus said, um, where a man's treasures, where his heart will be. What do you mean by that? Where whatever a man values is where he'll put his attention. That's what he'll grasp onto. That's what he'll hold onto because that's what matters to him. That's what's become valuable to him. All right? So let me take you to a, a verse. I think there's a gospel verse. I love how the Bible does this because here's Paul out here to the Philippians just writing probably somewhere around 55 AD, you know? And then here's, you can go back to Jesus who's talking pre-30 AD. I know his text isn't written right there. But you can find stuff happening in the Gospels that gets fleshed out in the epistles. Watch this statement by Jesus that I really think is the personification of what Paul says in Philippians. Luke 12, 15. Jesus said to them, Take care. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. One's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. 
Now, almost to the man in this room, I know you and I know me, when we read this verse, this is a money verse. This is a houses and a cars verse. And why wouldn't it be? Because it uses the word greed. I mean, it starts with G-R-E-E. What color is money? Green. It's only one letter away. It's like it's right there. I mean, greed has to do with money. And so if you're talking about greed, it's all financial. And so Jesus is just warning all those rich people. And this is always really easy for us because we live in a culture where someone's always richer than us. So none of these verses ever apply to us. You notice that? We never think about how rich we are compared to other people. We only just look at the other people and go, look at that dude in that house. That's greed. Jesus told him. Man's life doesn't consist of the abundance of things he possesses, all kinds of great. But I want you to notice something. Take care, be on your guard. He's not talking to a rich crowd, by the way. Take care, be on your guard. There are all kinds of greed. There's not just the greed that has to do with money. There's not just the greed that has to do with houses and jobs and retirements. And there's all kinds of greed. And so then Jesus defines what he means by saying your life is actually not made up of the abundance of stuff that you possess. What does possess mean? Possessions. Things in your hand. I hope you can make a connection now. Jesus thought that he was not supposed to grasp... He was supposed to empty. Let this mind be in you that was in Christ. A man's life doesn't consist of the stuff in his hand. In other words, a man's life doesn't consist of the stuff he can hold on to. It's way bigger than that. So it sounds like things you can grasp. I don't mean literally, but I mean in terms of your life. And one of the reasons I mean in terms of your life, can you go put that verse up again from 15? Yes. Be on guard against all kinds of greed. So let's stop talking about just money because your life doesn't, is not made up of the stuff you can hold on to. He doesn't say money. He says the stuff in your hand. Following Christ is a relationship and relationships give. And what do they do? They don't just hold. They let go where they got to let go. We know this in a really real way. We go, if you love something, you got to let it go. Why is that? Because you can't just grip. You have to have the open hand. When you let something go, you find out what it is. You also find out what it means to you. And so the mind of Christ is to let go and live his life letting go of the things. Letting go of alternate identities. Letting go of alternate ideas. Letting go of what he th- could have thought of himself as the, as sitting at the right hand of the father and seeing himself as a carpenter from Nazareth who knows he's a son and all of the ideas that we have to let go of. So I think greed manifests itself. We got to stop thinking of it in terms of money. We have to start realizing that it manifests itself in ways in which we think our life is made up of how much we can do and how good we can be. And the Christian faith has been co-opted by this idea in some respects That true Christianity is if you have more, you advance more, you walk in more favor, you're healthier, you're wealthier, you're wiser, that somehow you're at a breed or a level of Christianity that is tapped into this like magic spot in God, that that's the real Christians and that everything else and everybody else just doesn't know how to walk in the faith. And I think it's this form of spiritual greed where we really think that following Jesus is, is who gets the most spiritual toys. 
Jesus said, be careful of greed. Let go of stuff. It's not yours. None of it's yours. Your life doesn't consist of the abundance of things. He says, wouldn't it be nice if Jesus had right here told a story and been like, oh, you don't understand? Let me give you a story. Well, I'll be darned. He did. Luke 12, 16. Then he told him a parable. Classic Jesus. Classic Jesus. Sets you up with a line, then tells you a story. The story interprets the line. Here's the story. The land of a rich man produced abundantly. And he thought to himself, what should I do? I have no place to store my crops. So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and I will build larger barns. And there I will store all my grain and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. I like that. I'll say to my soul, soul. But, but I like it, but I don't. I like it in that it's kind of funny. I'll say to my soul, soul? Like, this guy just starts talking to himself. What I don't, what I'm not crazy about is a translation problem. Keep this in mind. Kind of mentally circle this right here. This soul, soul. You have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. That's the living the good Christian life, right? Got everything you need. God's got your back. Total favor. Look at this. Absolute finished work. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, you fool. Never good, by the way, when God opens with you fool. It's never a positive one in the Bible. This very night, now look at this word, your life is being demanded of you and the things you have prepared. Whose will they be? So it's with those who store up treasures for themselves but are not rich towards God. I'm going to deal with all this in a minute. Promise. But I want you to see this translation problem. This is word psyche. Slow, soul, life. I'm substituting having a dry erase board, which I hate. I don't like preaching with those, but you can get imaginary circles in your mind. All right. Imaginary circle around soul and around soul and around life. Same word in the Greek. Here's the interesting thing. In a lot of the Greek New Testament, this word is translated life. And I wish the translators would have done it the same way in the same context. For some odd reason, most of the translations flip this. Some of them say soul, some of them say life. Let's just play a game in which they both mean the same thing all the time, which that's a real stretch, right? So we're going to play a game in which the man actually says what Jesus says, because I think that's what he says. This is not, because this, is, this isn't real to us. The word soul is like a guy's just talking to himself. Like, I need to fix my inside. Hey, inside, what are we going to do? This is the word life. This is who this guy is. What he really is doing. Hey, life is made up of ample goods laid up for many years. So relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, no, tonight your actual life is being demanded of you. Tonight I want what you call life. Show me what you got. Give me your life. This is your this is kind of like your conversion experience. This is saying, it means coming to Christ and giving him who I am. Isn't that what we signed up for? You can have who I am. Tonight, your life is required of me, you. And so here you go. Here is whatever it is that you need from me. Your life demanded of you. Let me show you this. Your life is being demanded of you is a way of saying, remember, your life consists of more than you can hold on to. We, that was the verse that led into this story. Jesus said, a man's life doesn't consist in the abundance of things he possesses. By the way, let me tell you a story about that. Here was, there was a dude that had a whole bunch of stuff. And he thought his life consisted of his whole bunch of stuff. And then one night, God came to him and said, give me your life. What do you got? And the only thing the guy had was a bunch of stuff he grasped onto and held onto. And none of the stuff that you hold onto matters because when you hold onto it, 
You can't hold on to everything. Probably should have said it this way. When you hold on to your stuff, you can't hold on to what really matters. And what really matters is letting go of your stuff. This isn't a material message. You need to go sell your stuff. You don't need a house. You don't need a car. Jesus didn't have to do that. All he had to do was say, watch out for all kinds of greed. It comes in different stripes. It doesn't look the same way all the time. But what it is, is it's the stuff you hold on to that you think defines you. It's the stuff you hold on to that you think makes you who you are. Sometimes it'll be your money. Sometimes it'll be your job. Sometimes it'll be your looks. Sometimes it'll be your connections. Sometimes it'll be your family. Sometimes it'll be your education, your brains, your experience, your brawn, whatever. But none of it will last because none of it's real life. What it is, is an image. It's an illusion. It's not your reality. You are more. How many times have I tried to say this? I never say it well. You are way more than what you see in the mirror. And you are way more than what your bottom line says you are. And you are not less because you aren't walking in some fantasy dream of Christian favor. Like where there's no sickness in your house and all your bills are paid and you got three cars and that must mean you're really listening to God. You've known, you, re- you figured out how to quote the right scriptures. A man's life, be careful for all kinds of greed because a man's life isn't made up of what he can get his hands on. And what he can get his hands on just isn't just material stuff. It's whatever we hold on to as our identity. Jesus had this mind in him that he let go. And he emptied himself. So what if Jesus says to you, hey, have my mind in you. And you go, what's that mean? You got to let go. And you got to empty yourself. You got to let me do this work. So better to hold on to nothing but what constitutes real life. And then before you give me that next one, Brian, go back to the text, would you? This very night, your life is being demanded of you. And the things you have prepared, who do they belong to? All the stuff you grasp, how's that going to help you? Because at the end, we all actually die anyway. What Christ is trying to do is get you there spiritually before your body gets there physically. Christ is trying to get you to let go of your stuff before you literally have to let go of your stuff. How much of your stuff do you get to take with you to the grave? None of it. What if you learned how to let go of it before you made it to the funeral home? That's Jesus. Let this mind be in you that was also in Christ who didn't think it was something to be grasped at to have more than meets the eye. So instead, he just kept emptying himself in front of God and said, what do you want to do today, Dad? What do you want to do today, Dad? How is this supposed to look? What do you want from us? What do you want from me? What do you want me to do? Rich toward God. I'll go back. I'm sorry. I I want to read it. I want to read it first. Yep, yep. Uh, Scripture. Yeah, right here. Watch this. 21. So it is with those who store up treasure for themselves, but are not rich toward God. What's this mean? So it is with those who store up treasure for themselves, but not rich toward God. Okay, give me that next one. Rich toward God, better to use the Greek preposition. Rich in God, because our riches are found in being in God. What's that look like? Colossians. Three, one to four. If you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and here it is, your life is hid with Christ where? In God. So you are 
with Christ in God. That's your position spiritually. So don't be defined by anything other than that. I'm in Christ, in God. I'm not defined by what I grab hold of. Let this mind be in you. Let go of the stuff. Because who I really am is in Christ, in God. I don't have to be defined by anything on the outside. When Christ, who is your life, is revealed, then you will also be revealed with him in glory. I don't think this just means at the end of time. I think this means that as Christ is revealed in you, you get to figure out who you really are. And this is why we keep trying to show you Jesus. Because if we keep showing you Jesus and we keep giving you who he is, you, I, I believe we land in a place of, of perpetual revelation with him. Brian, I want you to go back. There was a, there's a, a, a moment right after, or on what I titled the third screen, right after the Romans text, where it starts with Christians or those who follow Jesus Christ. There was another part to that paragraph that we didn't get to. It's perfect that we end on this because it's actually the kind of thing I want to say at this very backside. I think we skipped this. We walk in the newness of Christ's resurrection. This is an important sentence to me. I want you to hear this. We are not passive. We are not disinterested. We are not boring. Because that's what some people think you're trying to preach. Because you've got to let go of everything. You've got to be this person that's just like miserable. Like nobody wants to be around you because, oh, I don't want anything to do with this life. That's not what I'm talking about. I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about. We're simply dead to the old reality as being the true reality. That's the sentence. What's really happened is we've died to the old reality as being the one that matters. We realize that there's a bigger reality. This isn't it. We are, in, we are dead in Christ in God and alive in his resurrection. There is more to life than just living. There's more to life than just breathing and making money and getting married and having kids. That's life. Maybe it's, that's, that's a life. There's more to life in that we've emptied ourselves of depending on any of it so that we can be who he has called and destined us to be. Your life is hid with Christ in God. Can we answer the question what it means to have the mind of Christ? We can get really close, I think. Maybe, I'm, we're not, maybe we're not all the way there, but we could start here. What's it mean to have the mind of Christ? We don't grasp. We don't hold on to stuff. Jesus never saw anything to hold on to. He just always saw everything to let go of. Dad, what do you want to do today? Yeah, but if you do that, they're going to cut you down. They're going to mock you. They're going to make fun of you. He goes, what do you want to do today, Dad? Yeah, but if you do that, this is going to happen. Father, I'm emptying myself. What do you want to do today? That's not a boring way to live. That's the most exciting way it's possible to live. The mind of Christ. How we want this message to go, I know. This is how we want it to go in our conferences. You get up and preach, have the mind of Christ. We just want identity. We want the preacher to get up and talk about how Jesus knew he was a son. You need to know you're a son. Jesus did know he was a son. But when Paul told you to have the mind of Christ, he got pretty specific. He said, here's what it looks like. Stop holding on to stuff and start emptying yourself. Here's the, here's the addendum. You sure you want the mind of Christ? This is how I study things a lot now. I get down to the end of a sermon. I say, okay, Lord, how do we end? And he goes, are you sure that you want to preach this? 
Because do you want the mind of Christ? Do you want to let go of some stuff that you, that you grip, that you grasp? Beauty is, I don't know what you need if you need to let go of anything. Uh, I don't know what transformation your mind needs to have. But I know to do it, you're going to have to let go of some stuff. And this is why it's good sometimes to unpack. I think we said this Tuesday night. This is why it's good sometimes to unpack some of the stuff that's going on in your mind and in your heart because maybe you can let go of it. It's hard to let go of what you don't acknowledge to be real. Hard to, if you don't say it out loud, it's hard to let go of it. A lot of Christians have just pushed stuff down, pushed stuff down, pushed stuff down. I saw a billboard this weekend that said, Jesus is the, only, Jesus is the answer for all of your problems. They had all underlined. And I thought, I don't want to be cantankerous, but good luck with that when you need to unpack some reality and you won't do it because you think Jesus is your answer and all you need to do is talk to Jesus and not mention it to anyone. Okay, well, good luck because sometimes Jesus told you you needed to go say something to your neighbor. There was a reason for that. Sometimes you need to confess your faults to your brother so that your brother can pray for you. Not because you're lost, but because you need healed. And that's part of the healing process is don't grasp. Let it go. Let it go. Hardest thing in the world to do is let go of stuff. It's the hardest. Easy to say, hard to do, to let go of stuff. Because we, we're used to holding it. What happens if I let go? I don't hold it anymore. That's mine. And learning what to let go of is part of the mind of Christ. Can I not I don't put any scripture up? Just let me give you an example. I think Jesus did this in real time in his ministry. He's at the wedding at Cana. And they've run out of wine. And his mom comes to him and says, son, they have no wine. And Jesus goes, what's that matter to me? My time has not yet come. I'm going to say it the way he did. Woman, what's that matter to me? My time has not yet come. And Mary turns to the workers and says, now listen to this act of faith. Turns to the workers and goes, Whatever he says to you, do it. And you think, if you're just a fly on the wall watching this story, you go, what do you mean, whatever he says to him? He just told you he ain't going to do nothing, woman. He even used the word woman. Woman, I'm not going to do anything. My time has not yet come. But Jesus doesn't grasp things. Jesus holds them loosely. What's he holding on to when mom says, they need wine? He's holding on to my time hasn't come. I'm just here to party. I'm just here to have a good time at the party. This is what I'm doing. And as mom speaks faith, Jesus, who has this mind in him, let go, just goes, what do you want to do, dad? And in the next moment, Jesus says, hey, fill the water pots with water, dip out, give it to the master of the house. There's no forethought. There's no practice. He didn't lay up fasting all night. He just let go. And a lot of the reasons you can't hear from God is because you won't let go of the stuff you've been holding on to. And it's not because God's punishing you. It's because you're holding on to the thing that if you would let go of, you could take the faith to step into the next move. Even Jesus had to go, okay. I know I just told mama, not my time's not yet come, but dad, what do you want to do? And in that moment, empty yourself, son. Empty yourself and we'll do something great. What happens? Turns the water to wine. In the most unconventional, it's the most unconventional miracle maybe he ever performs, but in the most unconventional way. He picks the purification stones, water pots. They're not even the stuff you drink out of. They're stuff you clean your hands off with. And he goes, fill those old, dirty, stinky water pots with, with enough water and then watch what happens. And 
I can't do that. I mean, even if I thought I had the power to turn the water to wine, I'd be pretty nervous right there. I mean, I'd be finding a way to go to a bathroom break while they dipped it. And just take a break. But Jesus doesn't grip, doesn't grasp it. Now, can we be that way? Yeah, we can with practice. We just got to learn to let go of the things we grasp. And I think a lot of us, not to be too blunt, a lot of us wouldn't have any problem following the Holy Spirit if we'd let go of grasping pride and what we thought people would think of us. Because what we're doing is we're holding on to what we think people will think of us. And Jesus, you want this mind to be in you that was in Christ Jesus? Learn to let go. You learn to let go, you're starting to think like Jesus. He says, I don't have anything figured out, Dad. What do you want to do today? Father, I thank you today for this word. Thank you for helping us with this. Thank you for giving my feet a solid spot to land today. Every time I open my mouth to talk about you, I think about where we land. Because where we land is the last thing people walk out with. And so thank you, Father, that we landed at a spot where we get to see Jesus loosen his grasp. I want the mind of Christ. There's been times in my life I thought I had it because I had definitions of the mind of Christ that was really just knowing how to quote scripture and know I'm a son. But I want the mind of Christ that Paul talked about, the mind of Christ that doesn't hold on to stuff, that lets go, that empties himself to the point of death. I know that the destiny of your children is to live the resurrected life in this life. I wanna know what that feels like and what that looks like and what it's gonna take is me learning to let go of my infatuation with the way this life looks. And if that can happen, we start to think like Jesus. We thank you for that as you teach us what that looks like in Jesus' name, amen. Now your story's valuable, like you have a story. You guys have a story of what you came out of, but you can't live there because if you live there, you won't do anything. Even if you live in shame, like, because I know I've come out of some stuff too and be like, gosh, I can't believe I fell for that. I did. I mean, it's like, oh, I can't believe I followed that. What was wrong with me? And you can live there so long you don't move forward because all you do is think, well, I don't want to be stupid. I don't want to fail again. I don't want to follow the wrong thing. But you got to let go. Some of it is we're grasping our guilt. We're grasping our condemnation. We're grasping our pain. We're grasping our stuff. That's why I said earlier, good luck with your Jesus is, is the answer for all things. Good luck if you're not willing to let go of stuff. Because you got to let go of stuff. Jesus would be the answer of all things. And that might look like therapy. God forbid, it might look like going to see a counselor and unpacking some stuff. It might. It really might. Because you gotta, you got to let some stuff go and get your hands off of it. It might look like confession. There's some people you got to cut out of your life because you can't move forward if you carry baggage with you. You just got to. You got to cut them out of your life. That's okay, too. You know, the Holy Spirit's with you even in that. He's with you in that. He's in, in that selection process. So this person can't be in your life. This person's a cancer to you right now. I didn't say this person is a cancer. They're a cancer to you right now. There are no... Because the only thing you can do with a cancer is kill it. This is why I hate it when people go, you know, people are the problem on the planet. People are like a cancer. You go, be careful with that ideology because the only thing good to do with a cancer is get rid of it. If people are a cancer, you should be killing people. That's the worst. That's nihilism. That's we've descended as well. People aren't your problem, but they might be a problem in your season. So move on, man. Cut them out. Let, listen to the Holy Spirit show you how to do that.